Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Kia ora and hello. I've been asked to tell you about No Labels, the radio show for, by, and about people living with disabilities. The show offers interviews and news about the disability sector in Aotearoa, New Zealand. On Wellington's Access Radio 106.1 FM. Find us on Facebook or go to www.accessradio.org.nz. No labels, our voice for you on Access Radio. Hello and welcome, I'm Mike Gawley. On today's show, I profile a podcast series on the crossover between music technology and disability. But first up, we hear from the recent Toy Puniki writer in residence, disabled woman writer Robin Hunt. Now, Robin Hunt, you're a professional writer. Um, mainly journalism, but other things. You, you're the blog. You've got the blog Low Visionary. Yes, but it's. Um, I haven't put anything on it for quite a long time, and I'm thinking of reviving it, but I haven't got around to doing it yet. What is this writer in resonance then with Art Sexies Aotearoa? Um, this this one is actually with Toy Porniki, so it's a Wellington City Council one. Um, the Art Access Aotearoa is a different one. So they, they offered a range of fellowships, but this is a re, this was a residency through the city council through Toy Porniki. And so, what kind of things does it mean for you? Well, it gave me six weeks. It gave me um, a room at um, at Toy Porniki to to work in. It gave me some money and it gave me a mentor. And um, <clears throat> I've worked quite closely over the years with. Um, a particular writer whose whose classes I've attended, and um, so uh, so so I, so she was paid to to be my mentor. So it was so it was a sort of parcel of things. What did it involve you doing? Well, I'd been thinking about writing an essay collection, and I'd written and had a few essays published. And so I thought, well, I might as well pull them together and write some more. So that's what I was doing. And I wrote, while I was there, I wrote, I said, you have to, you know, you have to write a, um, give them an idea what you're going to achieve while you're there. So I wrote a book proposal for a publisher, a draft proposal, and I wrote, I, I completed six essays to sort of a reasonable first draft form. So is there a theme... I can guess there is, but what kind of theme have you got for these essays? It's an exploration of disability and various aspects from a personal, but also you know a big picture level. So and oh the other and the other thing that they expect you to do is to help promote the residency and to um, um, you have to have a. Well, you don't have to, but I had a reading at the end where um, I read some of my work and invited people along to listen. You said it was personal and big picture, so can you go tell me a bit more about the personal aspects of these? Well, the personal essay gives you the chance to explore things from a personal level but also to, um, to incorporate research and knowledge and, you know, other people's work so that you can pull it all together into a personal account. But it is it is a very personal essay, so it is my own personal views and feelings and thoughts and 
um, conclusions, if you like, about certain parts of living with disability. So, um, for example, um, I wrote an essay for the spin-off, a Sunday essay for the spin-off, um, and it was promote pro it it. It kind of the provocation, if you like, was that people were saying they had a, a couple of years ago they had now they had a um, vaxathon, and they were saying, oh, it was like the old telethons, what fun they were, and I felt really annoyed because you and I were both um, involved with that telethon in 1980, and um, and it was a very politicising event for me. So I thought, right, I'm going to challenge this. So I I used the essay form to challenge what I thought about telethons and how telethons contributed to making me an activist. So, and how did they? Well, uh, <laughs> the attitudes were so awful and uh, the um, I guess it's the exploitation that I really didn't like and the infantilization of grown people and the use of a child in what I thought was a, a very manipulative way um, to promote the cause. And, um, you know, it seemed like the celebs were having a good time at our expense. They were using us in short. And yes, there was a lot of money was raised and it was great and it did a lot of good, but we shouldn't have to be exploited to to have resources. So for that, that was kind of the beginning um, of, of my journey of, um, oh, well, it wasn't the beginning really. I mean, I'd started thinking about these things. I'd already encountered the social model and I was already doing journalism work in 1980. But, um, but it, it gave me a chance to, it made me think and it gave me a chance to reflect and, and a lot of personal essays are reflecting on on things. And when you've um, been active in the disability community for as long as I have, you've done a lot of thinking and, you know, you've got a lot of resources. I've done a lot of thinking, a lot of reading. So I've got a lot of resources that I can draw on to, um, to write about disability. And I could get your sense of the exploitation that... How does that feature in the wider big picture? Well, reality um, of disability. I think it's not as blatant these days. You know, we don't have those blatant telethons anymore, thank God. But I think it's part of the big picture of ableism, which I haven't tackled yet. I've done started doing some thinking about the history and how it affects us, and of course, that's it's all linked together: the ableism and the history. And all of those things, but um, I've written I've written one essay about aging because um, it's a particular issue that I think has not been dealt with before because a lot of in the past a lot of disabled people didn't make old bones, um, and also the way society was structured around disability meant that people actually didn't have much of a voice when they were old. Um, so. Um, they also, um, I've lost the thread. <laughs> what was the original question? Sorry. I was just thinking about the different ways in which the big picture oh. of exploitation is oh, kind yes. of. Yes, yes. I think exploitation is only part of it. It's, it's, it's only part of the whole issue of, um, of, of ableism that underpins all of this. For example, um, 
I wrote and I wrote another one about being about vulnerability in a time of COVID um, back a few years ago, right at the beginning of the epidemic. And um, and I've been watching with interest what's been happening in Auckland with the floods and how disabled people get information, how well their, um, their needs are met in terms of access and safety and resources and all of that. So um, there's, there's, there's a whole lot of things that, um, that, that mean that disabled people are often really quite invisible. I mean, that's a paradox in a way, that we are very visible. Like someone in a wheelchair, like yourself, when you're going along the footpath, are very visible, and yet, as a, yet we're all quite invisible in lots of ways. Yes, I always think that while we may be, have visible impairments or not, the thing that unites us is that our experience has always made invisible. That's right. That's right. They're rendered invisible because of the way that so, the social narrative works. So there's things like the cultural invisibility. I mean, our our lives have not been visible in history. Um, in fact, I was watching a a video from the National Trust just yesterday, and apparently Henry VIII, and I knew that he was quite impaired as he got older, he fell off a horse at one stage, and I do remember knowing about that, but apparently he had all kinds of devices to um, to help him um, in, in his home, you know, things like he even had a wheelchair apparently, and sticks and um, all kinds of things. And, and yet you never knew anything about them. They were not told in history because of him wanting to maintain his power. Um, and I thought, gosh, he's the, he's, the, he's the Roosevelt of his time. You know, I was thinking about the big row they had over in the States when they were thinking about making that statue of Roosevelt. Yes. In the, in the memorial guard. And, of course, should he be portrayed as a wheelchair or not? It's interesting. A lot of people thought, no, he shouldn't be. And a lot of people thought, no, he should I know. In fact, I've sat in that statue myself. Yeah, it's really interesting. I Yeah, yeah, it was uh, a very interesting discussion in this modern time to still have to have that discussion. And the same thing goes on about Janet Frame. You know, was she or wasn't she neurodiverse? And really, to my mind, it doesn't matter whether she was or she wasn't because she had that searing experience of being labelled and treated as disabled, and that would have, must have informed her writing. So to my mind, whether or not she was is a moot point, although it was, it's always been hotly denied by everyone. But to my mind, it's the experience that counts and the labelling and the treatment. Yeah, I know there's always a bit of a risk, isn't there, about claiming people in some way retrospectively. Yes. And it's like, I mean, I can see the impulse for that is to try and point out how many people really have that experience. But at the same time, it's kind of like, well, did they or didn't they? Because well, of the debate rather than. I guess, the I guess was. Frida Kahlo's the other one who's become a bit of a disability darling. But the thing about Frida Kahlo is that her. There's so much paradox around disability. Like, if she hadn't had her accident, she might have become a doctor and we would never have had her art. Um, so, and she, her art was so amazing considering the physical pain and suffering that she did experience, but everybody writes about that and, and they almost fetishise, 
fetishize, is that a word? Yes. Fetishize her um, artificial legs and the, the decorations and so on. But they don't understand that she painted her life because that's what she had at hand. You know, she couldn't go out and travel the world and do landscapes or things like that, but she painted what she had at hand. And she did so with the most amazing spirit and joie de vie. She wrote only, you know, there was the, the painting that I love is the one that she painted not long before she died, and she wrote Viva la Vida, and it was fantastic. And I just think, and people talk about her life as, it was, as if it was all tragedy and suffering, which it was, but she was also a communist, and she had lots of affairs, and she was a really, really interesting woman. That's Robin Hunt, and her favourite track is Coming Home from visually impaired policy advisor and musician Paul Brown. Put a light in the window Your brother's coming home Set a meal on the table Your brother's coming home He'll be tired and weary After all these years alone He's coming home I your brother's coming home He's coming home To a place he's never been He's coming home To a land he's never seen He's coming home To a family he has never known Oh, Jock Thompson's bands Are coming home Chains from the door, your sister's coming home. Open wide your arms, your sister's coming home. Don't leave her standing there, after all the pain she's known, she's coming home. Your sister's coming home, she's coming home to a place she's never been. She's coming home. And she's never seen She's coming home To a family She has never known All job Thompson's bills Are coming home He's been angry and afraid Your father's coming home He's been hounded and betrayed your father's coming home So we every act of kindness I see the hope is sown He's coming home Your father's coming home He's coming home To place he's never been He's coming home To land he's never seen He's coming home To a family he has never known All Jock Thompson's bills Are coming home Bring her in from the cold Your mother's coming home Set her down by the fire Your mother's coming home Make her warm and make her welcome before the chance is gone, she's coming home. I am mother's coming home. She's coming home to 
place she's never been. She's coming home to land she's never seen. She's coming home to a family she has never known. All John Thompson's friends are coming home. Zimbabwe, your family's coming home, and from Syria and Palestine, your family's coming home, seeking rest and seeking refuge that they have never known. They're coming home, and your family's coming home. They're coming home to a place they've never been. They're coming home to land they've never seen. They're coming home to a family they have never known. All Jock Thompson's friends are coming home. Open up the border, our family's coming home. Increase the quota, our family's coming home. One king, one family, and we all just want a home. They're coming home, I your family's coming home. They're coming home to a place they've never been. They're coming home to land they've never seen. They're coming home to a family they have never known. All John Thompson's friends are coming home. They're coming home to a place they've never been. They're coming home to land they've never seen. They're coming home to a family they have never known. All John Thompson's friends are coming home. If you think another podcast entering the world's already crammed airwaves isn't anything special, wait until you catch Sam Morgan's newly minted series, Able Audio, which launches this Friday. So, Sam, podcasts seem to be cramming our communication channels recently. What makes your one special, do you think? So, Able Audio is a um, six-episode podcast series that explores the intersection of music, technology and disability. Um, It's funded by the New Zealand Music Commission and supported by Arts Access Aotearoa. I think it's important um, because there is a lack of resources for disabled people um, to see themselves within music technology, and I think this podcast is a step towards giving people with dis- disabilities representation. Yeah. So what aspects of disability do you think cross over into your podcast? Um, I suppose a lot of uh, music um, softwares are inaccessible. They haven't been designed with um, access in mind. So they don't work with screen readers a lot of the time. Um, and that's one major issue, but there's also no... A, a huge lack of education for people that want to use assistive technologies 
there's not really the same amount of education that a non-disabled person would be able to access for free. Yeah. So what kind of barriers have people been facing, including yourself possibly? I'd say barriers is, yeah, that from the get-go a lot of things aren't accessible out of the box. Um, we all know there's a cost of disability. Um, on average, I believe it's $116 disabled people earn less than non-disabled people in Aotearoa. And um, so a lot of assistive technologies, are um, they, they can be quite expensive and hard to get into the country. And there's also just uh, not much knowledge of them existing in the first place. Yeah. What motivated you to take on this kind of crossover investigation? Sorry, what was that? What motivated you to explore this crossover between music technology and disability? Uh, well, I have a degenerative eye condition, uh, which means that one day I might not be able to see. Um, I do a lot of recording and um, that got me worried about how I might continue to do that work um, if I can't see the computer screen. Um, and that led to some honours research I did at Massey University um, where I created some audio t tutorials on how to use um, an accessible keyboard and that eventually led to this project. Um, yeah, so it's out of <laughs> selfish necessity, I suppose, but I've, in turn, I think, yeah, it's good to um, help other people as well. Yeah. And what kind of supports have you had or found that enabled you to complete your own podcast series? Um, uh, geez, let me think on that one for a second. Could you ask the question again? Like, what kind of support? Um, well, um, one of the, one of the people, um, I interviewed, um, persons I interviewed was Chris Ankin, and he runs something called KK Access, um, and he pretty much reviews accessible music technologies um, for blind and low vision users. Um, and that's a really incredible resource because he does all the groundwork. And instead of you having to go out and try out this product and then, you know, spend quite a lot of money on it um, <laughs> and then find out that it's inaccessible, he already tell, he's already done it. He, he already says, look, it works to this extent, but you're going to face barriers down the line. So don't spend $200 on it. Yeah, so um, KK Access by Chris Ankin. What's your hope then for your podcast series? The hope, um, uh, well, I think it. I, I hope it kind of um, fills a gap. I, I talked with um, someone, Dr. Anthea Skinner, in, in Melbourne, and uh, she runs something called the Adaptive Music Bridging Program. Um, so it's pretty much a music program where they use assist, assistive and adaptive music technologies so disabled students can um, join an orchestra and then eventually join the mainstream orchestra. And one thing she noted was there's a real um, real gap in um, sort of um, music therapists and music teachers actually being aware that these... Um, these technologies actually exist in the first place. So um, a lot of the time when a disabled student might go to a music teacher, they kind of just might turn them away or they might um, assume that they'd be better at playing one instrument. But a lot of the time, 
um, there are actually assistive technologies you can use. So I hope it, I hope it is um, informative for people. I hope it connects some people. Um, yeah. You talked about being at Massey doing your what was it? Was a degree in music? Was it music technology? Yeah. Yeah. How much did you have to dig for yourself to find the information you needed, or how much was it there? Uh, a and lot how of much digging. Were they aware? A, a lot of digging. Yeah. Um. Uh, I think a lot of organisations and, and universities are now starting to um, care about accessibility, um, but, I mean, that was out of my own necessity. I know people who are um, blind and have gone and studied sound engineering and have pretty much been sat down and said, hey, there are certain things you can't do, you know, um, and, which really, really sucks. It is a quite a niche subject, so it was a lot of research. It was a lot of <laughs> finding really um, niche areas and trying to trying to make something of it so the the project in the end um, yeah when did you discover that you really had a musical talent and wanted to explore and develop it hmm I think I was talking about this recently I think my first ever memory is kind of pressing one of those audio uh, audio books where you, you know there's a picture of a guitar and then you press the button and it makes a guitar sound and I remember just being um, <laughs> blown away by it but um, my brothers and they played guitar and stuff like that growing up it was pretty much a toy um, yeah I think that that that's where it began for me and I definitely feel very privileged to have had the opportunity to just pick up a guitar and experience what it's like to create music um, and that's kind of where I'm steering my waka in that direction is to make sure that other people um, are able to actually um, engage with music making because it's such a beautiful thing um, yeah thank you Sam look I wish you well and of course the podcast series launches on Friday this week thank you for having me Cheers, mate. That's music technologist and vision-impaired podcaster Sam Morgan. And we'll go out on his favourite track, All I Need, off his album Nicotine Dream. Until next time, I'm Mike Gawley, looking forward to your company then. Ka kite anō. Forever
Brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks, New Zealand On Air, for funding accessmedia.nz.